0: Most people recognize the name Dior as one of the world's premier fashion houses. People interested in fashion and French history know Christian Dior was its founder and one of the most important figures in modern fashion. But far fewer people know the story of Christian's sister, Catherine. While not as famous as her brother, she lived a remarkable life. She endured terrible tragedy as a child, joined the French resistance, was tortured and deported to Ravensbrück, survived a death march, returned to France where she was awarded the Croix de Guerre, and inspired one of the most popular perfumes ever. Today's episode is an interview with author Justine Picardy on her new book, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture, which explores the life and world of Catherine Dior. Justine Picardy is the former features director of British Vogue, editor of The Observer magazine, and has worked as a fashion columnist for Harper's Bazaar and The Times of London. She is also an award-winning author of books such as If the Spirit Moves You, My Mother's Wedding Dress, The Life and Afterlife of Clothes, and Coco Chanel, The Legend and the Life, among others. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Before we get to your most recent book, I noticed that in 2010 you published the book uh, Coco Chanel, The Legend and the Life. Studying Coco, then later researching uh, Catherine Dior, must have been quite a shock since the two women couldn't be more different Coco was a very public figure who was even a singer in a cabaret, whereas Catherine was reserved to the point of being hidden. When writing Miss Dior, a story of courage and couture, did you reflect on the differences between these two large figures in 20th century French fashion?
1: Yes, I mean in- inevitably, I did. I think that what I reflected on. Was was in in terms of the differences. I mean, Miss Dior is as much about Christian Dior as, as as it is about Catherine Dior. It is a relationship. It's about a relationship between a brother and a sister, but it's also about Miss Dior, this sort of imaginary, um, romanticized version of French femininity which is represented by the misterior perfume and the misterior couture dress in the immediate aftermath of the second world war but what struck me having written my chanel biography uh was that with chanel you see her becoming really famous after the end of the first world war and the end of that first global flu pandemic of 1918 1920 and she launches chanel number no. 5 in 1921 so a, a century ago exactly and also the little black dress which makes her famous and what i found interesting if you know through looking at history through the prism of of fashion, through or couture and perfume, that you see Christian Dior becoming globally famous in the same way that Chanel did, but in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. So, so it's rather a long answer to your very good question, but my answer is what I was struck is how fashion. Becomes a way of reflecting a, a mood after a period of great trauma and disruption. And in its aftermath, you see these two great visionary appearances on the one, first of all, Coco Chanel, then Christiane Dior.
0: It's perfectly fine to give long answers to questions, especially because as I read this book, I couldn't help but think that. Here, you have to interpret the silence, which, of course, we are going to get more into because Katerine was a very reserved figure. So on that note, what made you want to write about Katerine?
1: Well, I wanted to write about her and Christian, her brother. So when I first started the research for the book, after my Chanel biography was was published, Dior, the House of Dior, asked me if I would like to look in their archives with a view, perhaps, to doing a biography of Christian Dior. And when I looked at those archives, I was struck by the beauty of the artefacts there, the the couture gowns that have been carefully preserved, the, the designs, the drawings, the illustrations. And I thought that it would make a really interesting exhibition and indeed it that did lead to the Dior Designer of Dreams exhibition at the V&A. That idea, original idea actually came from, from me and I introduced um, Dior and the archives to the V&A. And there is now the big exhibition at, at Brooklyn, the Dior Designer of Dreams exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. Um, But the figure of Catherine, I really, nobody really knew anything about her. So I knew I wanted to write about Christian, but I hadn't found my way into how to tell the story until I heard about Catherine. And I just thought it was so fascinating that his sister, who was the woman he was closest to in the world, she was his best friend as well as a beloved younger sister, and who Misty Orr is named for, he he called his first perfume Misty Orr in tribute to Catherine, had been so forgotten by history. So what was it about her story that meant that she was apparently written out of his story? And that's, the book explores that, So Catherine joined the French resistance at the end of 1941 at a time when very few people were active members of the French resistance in France. There was probably no more than 100,000 active members of the resistance at that point out of a population of 40 million. And I was interested in exploring, if, if you look at the, you know, the mythic figure of Miss Dior, so this this vision of of beauty and luxury and, and romance and femininity after the Second World War, how is it and why is it that the woman who is the inspiration for this perfume is forgotten? And that's what the book's about. That's what the book explores. What is it about the history of of the occupation in France and the resistance, and in particular, the women in the French resistance and those who survived deportation to Ravensbrück. What was it about their return to France that was literally unbearable for France to talk about?
0: So we've talked a bit about how Catherine was such a private figure. Was it difficult for you to research her and how did you approach the gaps in the record on her life?
1: I never saw this as a biography of Catherine Dior. That, that's not what this book is. This book is about Christian, his sister Catherine, and the story of, of many women... Um, who had similar experiences to Catherine, either in the French Resistance and also in the concentration camps. So I saw it as a piecing together of of threads. Really, Catherine. Nobody knew anything at all about Catherine. So there's a little bit about her in the Dior archives visually. So there's there's pictures. Um, of her both as a child and then um, when she was living with Christian in Paris in the 1930s when he was beginning his career as a freelance fashion illustrator and designer and she was working in a maison de mode in Paris. So there's some very atmospheric images um, which tell you something about how she you know was his first model in in a certain way then she appears in the archives of F2 which is this this resistance network that um was originally set up by some a couple of polish intelligence officers who found themselves behind enemy lines in france after the fall of france and had not, some of the Polish army made their way to um, London and and others, well, you know, many were killed or put in prisoner of war camps. But one of the f- earliest French resistance networks was in fact set up by some Polish officers. And then they started recruiting French people. And that was the network that she was part of. So Those archives were very interesting, but they were also reporting into and supported by British intelligence. So I also spent a long time looking in the archives, um, the National Archives at Kew in the United Kingdom, uh, which contained some British intelligence, Second World War archives. Um, And then I needed to go to Germany, to Ravensbrück, to find out what happened to Catherine and, and. and other women with her. But I also needed to find out what had happened to her in Paris when she was arrested in July nineteen forty-four by a Gestapo unit known as the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, which um had a, a German sort of sociopath or psychopath really who was in charge and who they liaised with the Gestapo in Paris, but they also recruited French collaborators who worked for the Gestapo um, and who were involved in in these arrests and torture and there was a investigation into the activities of the rue de la pompe Gestapo after the war um, and there were about 15,000 handwritten statements which were in about 14 cardboard boxes um, in a remote archive in France and I just went through all of these until I could find Catherine Dior's handwritten statements.
0: So many things to talk about that you mention, and we are definitely going to get to all of those. But first, let's talk about uh, Christiane Dior, which is you describe the relationship with her brother as being the most important of her life. Can you tell us about their lifelong
1: partnership? i'm not sure it was the most important of her life um it was certainly an extraordinarily long standing relationship in that they were very very close until you know his death in 1957 so he died in 1957 very unexpectedly of a heart attack and and then she had a long life after his death. Um, she she lived until the age of 90, and she didn't die until 2008. So I think it would be wrong to say it was the most important. It was certainly a profoundly important relationship. I think that what they shared was they were born into this prosperous Belle Epoque family family. Um, in in Granville on the Normandy coast. Their father had inherited a family business of fertiliser factories that had been established in the 19th century. So they were born into a very prosperous family. And their mother, Madeleine Dior, was a rather remote maternal figure, I suppose, which was quite normal in that kind of upper class backgrounds. And in those days, they would have been brought up by nannies and governesses and nursery maids. But where they were able to find a way, I suppose, to their mother's heart was through her love of the garden that she had created at their home in Normandy, and the, it was on top of a cliff top overlooking the English Channel, and she'd really created a garden there against all the odds. And of the five children it was Christian and Catherine who inherited this love of gardening which they shared with their mother but also with each other and then they they went in, endured together a, a series of catastrophes that afflicted the Dior family um their older brother Raymond who joined um, the French army during the first world war soon after Catherine's birth he was the only soldier in his division to to survive the you know appalling death toll of of the first world war in the trenches and he suffered from shell shock and also the after effects of of mustard gas poisoning and then their other brother bernard developed schizophrenia and was institutionalized and they never saw him again. And their mother, Madeleine, died of septicemia, and then their father lost all his money in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression. So this family that had gone from a very secure and prosperous way of life was left with nothing. So the house in Granville ended up in the hands of the town council. All its contents were sold. Their father... Maurice Dior um, ended up with a tiny little farmhouse in rural Provence, in the hills of Provence. And I think Christian really felt that it was his responsibility to help look after Catherine. She'd lost her mother when she was just 13 years old. And he, at the time of his mother's death, and when his father lost all his money in the Wall Street crash, had an art gallery in Paris, which was showing um, modernist art, everybody from Dali to, to Max Jacob and Picasso, Christian Berard. But in in the early years of the Great Depression, you know, nobody wanted to buy those modernist and surrealist artists. So his gallery went bankrupt and he had to learn how to make a living, which he did by teaching himself to draw. And then as soon as he was able... Um, he gets Catherine a job in a maison de mode and they live together in Paris. So they they discover independence together, both economic independence by both having to earn a living, but also, I suppose, the independence of living in Paris in the late 1930s at a time when, you know, it was a centre of modernism, of bohemianism. It was a very exciting city for 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 the brother and sister you know to live in together so they shared that experience and then they shared the catastrophic experience of the invasion of France in 1940 and the fall of France and the occupation and together first of all they were living in their father's farmhouse in Provence growing vegetables because like so many other people they were close to starvation because of of rationing so much food and fuel and you know so much was being siphoned out of france and into germany and so so they shared this series of of catastrophic events in their life that's what made them very close
0: today's episode is brought to you by factor factor provides fresh never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazini cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com/frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 sign up today your stomach will thank you. So the next segment of the book is one of the most harrowing yet fascinating parts. Uh, Catherine falls in love with a member of the resistance and joins an organization to liberate France. What did she do to fight the occupation?
1: So she she joins, as you say, she f- fell in love with a man called Hervé de Chabonnerie, who was one of the earliest members of, of the French resistance, and he was part of F2, this Franco-Polish network that were reporting into British intelligence. It's very interesting. Catherine met him... Um, really, during her first act of resistance, which was to go and try and find a radio. So she went to, to Cannes from their little farmhouse in Provence to, to go in search of a radio and to get a radio. She wanted a radio to listen to General de, de Gaulle's band broadcasts on the BBC um, on behalf of the Free French. And de Gaulle you know, from the very beginning of of the fall of France and Vichy France was calling on the French to resist, to not collaborate. So the mere fact that she wanted a radio to listen to these banned broadcasts was a sign that she was prepared to resist and indeed to risk her freedom in that cause because simply to have a radio and to listen to those BBC broadcasts of the free French, was to risk imprisonment. So when she's getting the radio, she meets Hervé. He recruits her. They fall in love. And her role was to gather intelligence on on the the German troop movements. And first of all, she did that all the way along the Mediterranean coast um, and in southern France. So Cannes, Nice, Marseille, she was part of a very very active resistance network but their role was not to um you know like the unlike the maquis who were would would you know sometimes try and take on the germans in um you, you know by by attacking them or blowing up um you know perhaps a, a railway line Catherine's role in F2 and F2's role was intelligence gathering. And as the Allies made their plans, well, first of all, for the United Kingdom, when it was totally isolated and was the last part of Europe to be not to be occupied, they needed information from F2 on where the, the Germans were moving troops to, because at that point it looked very likely that that the United Kingdom would be invaded. And then um, after America joins the war on the Allied side and the Allies begin to make their plans to to, to land on French soil and to fight the Germans, those landings were taking place on the Mediterranean coast and at Dunkirk... Sorry, not Dunkirk on the Normandy coast for the Normandy landings, the d day landings. and so the the information and the intelligence that was being provided by Catherine and the rest of f two was vital for those landings. At the same time, the Gestapo was stepping up their um surveillance and infiltration of these resistance networks and uh, towards the beginning of 1944 Catherine got a coded message telling her to go to her to her brother in in Paris because more and more people were being in her network were being arrested along the southern coast and so she was told to go to Paris and to continue the activities there in Paris which she did so she moved into Christian's Apartments um, where they'd lived together before the Second World War, and he where he was living again, and she, he sheltered her. He he also sheltered other members of her resistance network when they had meetings there. But finally, she was, and this particular network was was betrayed by a French collaborator, having been infiltrated by a French collaborator, and in early July. Catherine, along with other members of the network, were arrested and tortured at 180 Rue de la Pompe by these particularly brutal um, collaborators and French Gestapo members. And some of them were so badly tortured that they were killed. And indeed, to begin with, I mean the, the archives of, of F2, one of the leaders, originally thought that that Catherine also had been tortured and killed. But in fact, she she didn't give away any names. She survived the most terrible bouts of, of torture. Um, by remaining silent, she saved the life of Herve, um, of his family. Of her best friend Liliane, who was in the same resistance network, and of her brother Christian. So she was tortured on two separate occasions um, and imprisoned uh in a French prison, Fresnes, and then moved to an internment camp on French soil on near Paris, and then was deported on the 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 night of the 15th of August. 1944 so really just shortly before the liberation of Paris and the train that she was on which was made up of of sealed cattle trucks that left Paris it was the last train of deportees out of Paris before Paris was liberated by the Allies on the 25th of August so she was on a train with um, about 400 Women and there were members of the resistance like her, French women. There were also British SOE agents who'd been working with the French resistance. There was a an American woman um, on board who'd been working with the French resistance. She had a an American husband, and there were also about eighteen hundred to two thousand men, including um, Allied airmen who'd been shot down and. Who were deported, and the men were sent to Buchenwald concentration camp, and the women to Ravensbrück. Christian managed to find out that that Catherine, um, that she'd been imprisoned, and that she was then on this train, and the train took a week to reach Germany. And until it crossed from the French borders into Germany, Christian had been doing his very best to get. Catherine released off the train, as were many other people, because the Allies were now so close. You know, they were on French soil. It seemed particularly brutal that the Nazis were still forcing the this train um, of prisoners to go to Germany. But Christian didn't succeed in in getting Catherine off, and she arrives in in Ravensbrook on the twenty second of. August 1944. And Ravensbrück was Hitler's only concentration camp for women. And she arrives there, and it is the beginning. She's already had this terrible experience of torture and imprisonment in France, and then this terrible journey with no water, no food, no sanitation on the train. And then she arrives. Uh, in the the hell that is Ravensbrück. So,
0: how did Catherine survive, and what was her brother
1: doing while she was in Germany? So, when she was in Germany, so she arrived at, in Ravensbrück, and this, I mean, all concentration camps were truly terrible, and Ravensbrook was no exception to that rule. She was subjected to a program called Extermination Through Labour. So there were gas chambers at Ravensbrook, but there was also this this truly appalling program where the prisoners were worked to death as slave laborers. Some of them stayed at Ravensbrook. There was a a Siemens factory at Ravensbrück that was, um, you know, manufacturing weaponry. There was a textile workshop where women were forced to make SS uniforms. Um, And there were various other sort of slave labor that they were forced to do. So Catherine worked at, at Ravensbrück for a time, and then she was moved to a series of three sub camps. Um, and while I was researching the book, and I went to Germany twice while I was researching the book, I just had no idea that there were so many camps, there were over 1100. And, you know, many of them have been completely forgotten. And the three that Catherine was was moved to, which were called Torgau, Abtiroda, and then Marklinburg, were you know, none of these are, are well-known names like like Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen or or Buchenwald, but terrible things happened there, and Catherine was was forced to work as a slave labourer on you know munitions on on aircraft engines, and many of her companions and her comrades were, were worked to death or or died of. A combination of disease, you know, starvation, exhaustion, and somehow, Catherine survived. And I interviewed um, a woman in in America who'd who'd met Catherine in in one of these camps, along with the other French women. And this woman was just fourteen at the time, and she had a, a she and her thirteen year old sister were the only People who had survived in a in a large Jewish family who'd been deported to Auschwitz, and she and her younger sister had ended up at the same slave labor camp as as Catherine and a number of the French members of the resistance. And I went to talk to her about her experience, and she is one of the last survivors. And she said that Catherine and and this other small group of French women. Had seemed very, very courageous to her. They had shown her and her younger sister how to do a, a V sign for victory. She also told me that that Catherine had continued to resist by sabot- secretly sabotaging the machinery that they were working on, so that it would break down, or that the the components that they were manufacturing for for the Nazi arms manufacturers would have a flaw in them. So so Catherine found a way, I suppose, to survive by resisting. And she said to me that Catherine was the captain of her own soul, which I thought was very sort of powerful description that, that somehow, that although physically she was imprisoned and was suffering terribly, that she somehow found ways of not letting her spirit be crushed by the Nazi regime. And given that everything that the Nazis did in, in the camps was to dehumanise people, to treat them as subhuman, that that the, the, the survivors like Catherine, they survived for a number of reasons. One of them just might be luck. The other was the support of... Of the, their friends around them, and then the other way was to somehow find a way to keep your spirit alive, and that's what Catherine did, and she managed to escape from what were known as the death marches. So, as the Allies were advancing across Germany, she was in a, a camp that received a um, a command that the prisoners should be evacuated away from the advancing Allied troops. So there was this sort of crazy vision that the Nazis still had, the leadership, that somehow, you know, they were still going to win the war and that these slave labourers would come in useful. So they were forced onto a death march where many, many more of them died, were collapsed and were shot. But Catherine managed to escape after, you know, the most terrible experiences where Germany was in in ruins. She escaped in Dresden when Dresden had been firebombed and was in complete ruins. But she finally made her way back to Paris at the end of May 1945, and Christiane was there at the train station to meet her, and she, like so many of the the returning deportees, was unrecognisable. She was emaciated, her head had been shaved. And she recovered physically um, by, first of all, going to Provence, where she spent the summer of 1945. And there's a letter in the archives where she said that just being um, in this place that that she loved with the sunlight and this landscape that she loved was was a way of helping her convalescence and one of her friends um said that one of the few things she'd said about her experience in in the camps was that she was determined to see the sunrise and the sunset again in, in france this land that she loved and in provence so she slowly recovers that summer and she has the love of of the two men that that she has these very important relationships with, which is um Christian and and Herve. Her father was also still alive at this point, though he died in 1946. And she also found a way to go on living, despite deep psychological scarring and physical trauma and suffering. Um, through flowers so she started growing roses and jasmine um, on her father's farm after his death in 1946 he left the farm to her um, but she also in the autumn of 1945 when she was living with Christiane again in in Paris um, she received a license to deal in cut flowers in the in the flower market in in Paris, so she literally, in one sense, becomes a flower woman. And the phrase is important because when Christian makes the decision to set up a couture house and a and a launch a perfume of his own in 1946, he seems to have decided this in the spring of 1946. It's when Catherine is living with him, and he says that. He wants to to launch a a fragrance which is the fragrance of love. He calls it, but it's 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 a floral fragrance, and its its prime ingredient is rose. But then there are other flowers that are part of it. And Catherine is growing roses, and she is surrounded by roses in Paris. And he also his first couture collection. He calls it La Corolle. Or the corolla, which is you know the name of, of the central part of the flower and the petals, the whirl of petals that surrounds it. And and there is Catherine, who has found a way to go on living after the trauma of her experience through love and through flowers. And Christian takes this and turns it into his famous
2: I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.
0: It truly is an incredible story, and you do an incredible job detailing her life from her early childhood up far past World War II. So let's talk a little bit about her life afterward. You mentioned how she how she grows flowers, how she lives a mostly quiet life. However, there is a moment where she does have to reconnect with her prior trauma when she testifies against some members of the Gestapo and their involvement in cracking down on the resistance during World War II. Can you talk about this trial and her involvement with it?
1: Yes, it's an extraordinary trial based on a long investigation that actually started fairly soon after the liberation of Paris. So this unit that was known as the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, there's one... Polish woman who'd been living in Paris and was uh, uh, was horribly tortured at the Rue de la Pompe, and rather than being deported, she was somehow kind of overlooked. And she was actually in hospital when the Allies arrived in Paris, and she made a statement saying that she had been arrested and tortured, and that there were German members of the Gestapo, but there were French members of the Gestapo too. So a French investigating magistrate um, takes on this investigation and it takes until November 1952 for the trial of the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo to take place. And in that period, they take literally thousands of witness statements, including from Catherine Dior. And I mentioned that in my research, I went through all these handwritten Witness statements in order to discover what it was that the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo had done and how they operated and their links with black marketeers and and racketeers in Paris. And the trial finally takes place, and and Catherine is one of the witnesses. And the fact that she appears in court is, is very, very brave, given how traumatic. It was for her talking about her experiences. But what is equally telling is that at this point, her brother is not just one of the most famous Frenchmen in the world. He's not just, you know, the most famous designer in the world. He's one of the most famous men in the world. And Catherine appears at this trial and nobody says anything about her in the reporting. Nobody makes the link with the fact that she is Christiane Dior's younger sister. Even more remarkably, because I went through the archives of the newspapers that covered the trial, and the reporter, the journalist from Le Monde who who covers the trial, he had been a member of the French resistance and he had been deported to to a German concentration camp which was one of the reasons he wanted to to cover the trial. But he says in his reporting on the trial that nobody in France wants to know about the trial, that the public gallery is empty. And he makes the point that France cannot bear to think about what has happened during the Second World War when it comes to the widespread collective collaboration. Of course, not everybody actively collaborated in the same way that the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo had active French collaborators. Not everybody were members of the Vichy regime. You know, some people just, like in fact, like Christian Dior, were tacit supporters of the resistance. Christian Dior, by sheltering his sister at his apartments, where members of the resistance were meeting that would have been enough for him to have been deported if he'd been arrested but so many people I suppose just kept their heads down and did what they had to do to survive but many people made a lot of money out of collaboration Um, many people made money out of the black market and then of course you know there were huge numbers of people that were involved in Vichy France and Vichy France which had very rapidly Dismantled French democracy in 1940 with the establishment of the Vichy regime, had enacted their own viciously anti-Semitic legislation without even being told to by the Germans. So there was there was a lot of, I mean, France was really, I suppose, divided, but you see General de Gaulle with the liberation and his famous speech. Um, in August 1944, where he says France, you know, France has been martyred, but then France has been liberated by the whole of France, the true France, the eternal France. So de Gaulle makes this decision that in order for France to be reconciled and reunited and to move forward, there has to be this myth that everybody resisted, everybody comes together for the true France. Whereas in fact, the reality is many people didn't resist. And that very difficult, tricky history makes it a very traumatic period of France for the French to think about. And I think that one of the things that was so hard for Catherine and, and other women like her was that when... Those survivors of Ravensbrook returned, and I explore this in the book. Some of them had written diaries or memoirs and wanted to talk about it, wanted to publish books. Nobody wanted to talk about it. And as I write about in the book, they they go through yet another sense of betrayal and trauma when people cannot bear to hear about their experiences. And I think that that perhaps what makes it so difficult and why there is so much silence about the women is some of them, you know, had been sexually assaulted both either when they were tortured um, or during their periods of imprisonment. And some of the women who talked about surviving the camps and returning to France, and then they were mistaken for, Les Femmes Tendues, so those women who had their head shaved after the in the immediate aftermath of the liberation, where women who were perceived and indeed scapegoated for having been seen as having collaborated, some of them had, had their heads shaved. So the women returning from the camps also had shaved heads. And there was just so much trauma and and suffering and and bitterness that France just prefers to forget.
0: Yeah, it is one of the most powerful and shocking parts of the book. And I can't imagine what she must have been going through at the time having to relive those horrible experiences.
1: And to also know that so many of the women who had been arrested by the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo and tortured died in Ravensbrück. So some of her own comrades in F2 or comrades in the French resistance who had not only suffered at the hands of the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, thanks to the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo, they had been deported to Germany where they had died. So it was, it was, and yet her witness statements are very um, detailed. She, she gives all the details of what had happened to her and she gives the names of other women in her resistance network who'd been arrested at the same time as her. I mean, one of Christian Dior's friends who was in F2 with Catherine had been killed at Rue de la Pompe, she, he had, his torture was so violent that he was killed. So Catherine gives all this information, and but when she's on the witness stand, the only thing that is reported actually um, in Le Monde, and they don't make the the association with Christian Dior, but one of the defense lawyers says that you know she must have been mistaken it can't have been these two particular frenchmen who tortured her because a number of the the people involved had rather conveniently vanished at the end of the war and were never found and were tried in absentia and so the the defense lawyer tries to say oh well it weren't it wasn't these two particular frenchmen who were actually you know on in in on trial in person, it must have been two of the others who disappeared. And she says, I know who I saw. I know who I'm talking about. So she goes through it, but to a France that appears not really to care very much at this point, they just do not want to be reminded of what has happened. The other thing I think that was very hard for, for Catherine was that in the, post-war economic miracle that takes place in West Germany, there, is, there are many of the German industrialists um, who'd been involved in slave labour, um, You know, whether it's at Siemens or BMW, these sort of household names either go to prison for a very short amount of time or are never even put on trial. So nobody from the Siemens factory at Ravensbrück Was ever ever went on trial in Germany. And what we see in West Germany is that after the, the immediate famous Nuremberg trial, there is a sort of feeling that the Soviet Union becomes more of a threat. And the the Nazi industrialists, some of whom have never been put in prison and others are let out of prison because there's a feeling that. That West Germany needs to be reconstructed; it needs to be rebuilt, and the way to do that is with these industrialists. So, for Catherine, who never returned to Germany after the war, um, some of her comrades did, and indeed planted roses at Ravensbrook. There's an extraordinary rose garden that was planted at Ravensbrook in by. French women and Czech women and Polish women in memory of their sisters and friends and daughters and mothers who died there. Catherine didn't return to Ravensbrück, but even if she just saw a German car with a German number plates on the road in France, she would be angry and upset. And who can blame her when you think she worked as a slave labourer in a camp for a BMW factory? And if she... She couldn't bear to be reminded that those brands like Siemens and BMW were still operating and and very very successfully. So she would never own a, a German household appliance, for example, whether it was a you know a fridge or a or a cooker. And she certainly she hated seeing German cars. So in that sense, she couldn't forgive or forget, but she did make. A very meaningful life for herself and she lived life on her own terms. She remained with Hervé de until his death in 1989 and and they ran both the, the flower business together in Paris and then the rose growing business together in at their home in France. And when her brother died in 1957, he made Catherine, um, he described her as his moral heir. So she was in charge of his legacy. So all his drawings, his illustrations, the couture gowns, it's thanks to Catherine that there is the Christian Dior Museum in their childhood home in in Granville. She became the first president of, of that museum in the 1990s. And much of the Dior archives is based on material, that Catherine preserved, so she was incredibly loyal to Christiane and to his artistic legacy. She also, every year, um, she would go to the, the the commemoration of people that had died fighting for for French freedom, both during the Second World War and um, and she, she, you know, w- would remember those who had died f- for France and she on one occasion um talked to school children in her local village and i actually met one of the people that had been a child at that point but is is now a grown man and he said that when she came to speak to the school about the second world war she didn't say anything horrific about her experiences she just said you know france had been occupied and the the nazis had occupied france and the many people had suffered and but some people had, had resisted so she put it in quite simple terms there was no horror in her description but she you know felt it was important for these school children to know what had happened during the war so that it could never happen again she lived until she was 90 and she carried on growing her roses which were still used for for Dior perfume including for Miss Dior and she lived until the age of 90 and she died in June 2008 having brought in her what would prove to be her final harvest of roses and that to me is extraordinarily inspiring that this I mean I'm a I'm a I love gardening. I'm, I'm a keen gardener, and in my garden, I've I've planted roses in memory of of Catherine and and the women like her. and And I think to to grow roses or indeed to create a garden is a sign of hope in the future. You don't plant a tree or plant a meadow full of roses unless you're thinking of future generations, unless you're looking ahead to the years ahead. It is a an act of faith it is an act of of hope to plant roses and the other extraordinary thing about roses at the final chapter of my book is called no rose without a thorn and and that is based on a you know on a, a saying that there is no rose without a thorn and roses are beautiful roses are fragrant but they are also covered in thorns and and that seems to me to be so Wonderfully emblematic of of Catherine she showed great resilience. There are roses that can survive terrible winters, indeed, the roses that were planted at Ravensbrook are called resurrection roses because they have a, an ability to survive very cold winters. But sometimes roses die in a very cold winter, and yet Catherine would go on planting her roses, go on tending her roses. And that's such an extraordinary act of, of resilience and hope.
0: So let's get back to the title of your book, Miss Dior. Despite living largely in the shadows, she did have an impact on her brother and through him the fashion world. And I think it's apropos that you mentioned the roses and her cultivation, because this definitely plays into it. What impact did Miss Dior have on French and world fashion?
1: Well, Miss Dior, the perfume, becomes and remains one of the most successful perfumes in the world. So it still not only survives today, but it still thrives today. And for many people, you know, that bottle, little bottle of Miss Dior will be very emblematic of something that is seen as being quintessentially French. Just as Christian Dior comes to represent the continuation of French tradition, the tradition of French luxury, of artistry, of couture after the war, it continues to represent that today. So Miss Dior, the perfume, still continues today. Christian Dior also designs a very beautiful couture dress called the Miss Dior Couture Gown, which is a gown covered in thousands of beautifully, intricately hand-embroidered flowers, including roses and lily of the valley. And that gown still survives in the Dior archives, but it has also been remade by the the current or reinterpreted by the current creative director of Christian Dior, who's Maria Grazia Curie, the first female creative director of, of Dior. And Maria Grazia Curie has put feminism at the heart of her creative vision for the brand. And by making a Miss Dior dress, um, y- you have that sense of, of how Miss Dior remains at the heart of the brand. Maria Grazia has also been inspired, in part by my research and my book, into the figure of of Catherine Dior because of her her independence, because of her fight for 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 freedom, and so there have been subtle references to to Catherine in Maria Grazia's creative vision for the brand. So her spring 2020 collection was inspired by the figure of of Catherine as a as a gardener, as a constant gardener, and and so you see that in in Maria Grazia's designs. Um, she also did a bag which she called the Caro bag, and it's a very subtle reference to as as her own tribute to Catherine because Caro was was Catherine's codename in the French Resistance. So you see how today in 2021, Catherine continues to inspire Christian Dior today.
0: Your book uncovers a unique figure with an incredible story, having served in the Resistance, survived a concentration camp and death march, Won the Croix de Guerre and engaged in France's world renowned fashion industry. But your book isn't just about her, it's also about you and your journey to rediscover this largely unknown figure. What was your main takeaway from researching Catherine Dior, and what do you hope your readers will be left with once they finish the last page?
1: Well, I suppose I hope that the readers will have come with me on this journey. And it is in places a very personal journey because I I literally went to the places that I was writing about. So their home in, in Granville, the family home, which is uh, Les Rumes, was the name of the villa, and the garden is still there today their family home is now the Christian Dior museum i went to um to ravensbrook i went to the the satellite camps i went i discovered the the rose garden in ravensbrook which is one of the most moving places i've ever been to in my life not just my life as a writer you know i'm now 60 so in my entire life and to Avenue Montaigne, to Christian Dior's Couture Salon, to his home in Provence, La Noire, to Les Nice, which was where Catherine and Christian had lived together in the 30s and in the early years of the war, and then when she lived after the war with Hervé and where I, I went and stayed during the rose harvest while I was writing and researching my book. So the reader comes with me, And in that sense, you know, some of the book is written in the first person because I myself were going to those places and I hope that the reader will come with me. So I hope that by joining me on this journey, the reader will feel a kind of personal experience of this historical period and will have realized that there are so many stories that and women's stories that i have written about in the book that it is about her story or her stories as well as history and that history is very often the story you know of of generals of of military leaders of of prime ministers of presidents of male politicians and that I hope that this book will give a sense of people who are often not part of mainstream history and I include Christian Dior in that because I think that all too often fashion is can be marginalized from the history of 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 war because it's seen as being you know frivolous and and just not relevant but I think that my experience of writing about Coco Chanel and Christian Dior has taught me that fashion is what we wear is an important expression of history. I mean, Virginia Woolf, in her wonderful novel, Orlando, um, says clothes change our view of the world and the world's view of us. And I would agree with that. You know, the Nazis were obsessed with the clothes they wore. You look at how jewish people were forced to wear a yellow star so that and that they were forced to sew it onto their clothes and it came out of their their clothing rations they were forced to be marked out as being different and then the concentration camp uniforms those 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 striped uniforms that that we do we should look at the, be allowed to look at the fabric of history. And the fabric of history includes real material. The warp and weft of history can include what people wear. And and I hope that, I mean, the the story of the history of couture during the occupation of of Paris is fascinating. The couture industry thrived during the occupation of Paris. And there is a myth that that was just because it was down to German officers and the wives and mistresses of, of, you know, Nazi officials and Germans. In fact, yes, there were some, some Germans were buying couture, but there were also a lot of French collaborators um, who'd made a lot of money, whose wives and girlfriends were, were dressed in couture. And, That hadn't really been written about before, so I wanted to explore these areas. And and I hope that that people, I suppose what I ultimately hope is that I was interested, fascinated in doing the research in things that I'd known nothing about. And I hope that readers will share that fascination in untold stories.
0: The book is Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture by Justine Picardie. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Gary.
0: As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.
3: Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title.